0: So let's get into an informative and empowering conversation. Hello and welcome to the Motherhood Village podcast. I'm on with a very special guest. I have Becky Gleed. She is a licensed family therapist, a perinatal mental health professional, and author of Employed Motherhood Healthily and Holistically Transition Back to Work After Having a Baby. Drawing from her training in mental health and personal experience as a working mom, Becky has fantastic tangible tips, insights, and fresh perspective on often overlooked aspects of motherhood, like challenges and opportunities of remote work and navigating the countless transitions of motherhood, big and small, from building trust with a child care provider to managing separation anxiety. Ooh, Becky, I'm so excited to talk with you. Mm. How are you today?
1: I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here. All things working motherhood. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Mm. (laughs) Okay.
0: First question I always like to ask my guests is, what is your favorite book or one that you would like to recommend? Some have actually been giving two. Mm -hmm. They usually give like a book that they're like every mother should read and then something that has kind of impacted them, but you can take it however you want to.
1: Absolutely. So I will share one now, more focused on the mom and kind of a relational recommendation. And then two later on, I will give more for children. So then there's a bibliotherapy recommendation. Okay. But the first one I'm gonna point to, so with couples, particularly couples new parents, (laughs) there's a method that I use clinically called the Gottman Method. And it's science-backed, it's research-based. It's out of actually Seattle, Washington, it's called the Gottman Institute. And it's a couple, Mm -hmm. he was a mathematician, she's a psychologist, John and Julie Gottman. And they established this incredible love lab where they studied relationships for decades. Mm. And I say this because they could have chosen any topic to spend, you know, the last, you know, decade of their work on. And they chose parents. And I think that really speaks to the gap. And I'm going to circle back to the recommendation, which is a book called The Science of Trust. And while this is really focused on couples, the tenants can be used and translated to the child care provider relationship, mm. the science of trust with your partner, the sure. science of trust with your, your child, again, the child care provider. So the science of trust, I can stand stand behind that one.
0: It's so interesting that you talked about parenting and and couples. And I know you are a, a relationship therapist as well. Mm-hmm. And I thought about asking you questions uh, regarding that when I when I kind of came up with what we would talk about. But I left that out. However, I will ask one thing, or maybe just mention something. So I have a I run three evening support groups for moms. A lot of what I do oh, is fantastic. really tied to the mental health, which is why I try to talk to as many licensed me- mental health counselors as I can, I feel like everyone comes with a different perspective and maybe sure. even way of they doing of way of doing things but literally today a mom sent a message in the whatsapp chat that I have for the moms and the gist of it was that her mother in law was very relationship centered um, during her husband's life meaning she put her tend to put her relationships first before him, so she asked in the chat, like, you know, I'm mm-hmm. kind of struggling with this because my husband thinks I should be more relationship than child centered, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So she was mm-hmm. like, "Ladies, are you more relationship, child, yeah. or self centered?" And we were all kind of blown away. We're like, "Oh, we've never heard of it put that way." And I realized, and from the gist of even having the other moms jump in, I think it flows. I definitely know I'm in a season of child centered. I was when my when my son was first born. Like I was in mm-hmm. it. I was like, "Husband, who no." after the first year, but it goes in line with your trust. I didn't trust. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure. And I know, I'm sure it still ties into, as you said, the caregiver aspect, and even the working aspect of going back to work and all of that. But to your point, um, and I guess I'll end with that, because to your point of saying they could have talked about anything but talking about parents. And I think that's so important. And for any new moms listening or any moms that are in it, like it's hard. And now that I kind of got over it, I guess I'll go back to say, after about a year, I was like, okay, I can trust more, I felt more comfortable with, I guess, my role as a new mom. But now my son just started grade school. So I feel myself reverting back to Sure child-centeredness, I guess, if that isn't. So I guess my question to you and all of this before we move on is, is there such thing as those terms? And is that something that you help your clients with?
1: I have not put it into those terms, although I can absolutely see how that would resonate with a mom, especially if there's some generational patterns playing out in her current relationship. I like to say they don't have to compete. Mm, I, I like, love that. Look look at the relationships and how do you want to uniquely create trust and support? And it's going to look different with your partner than with your girlfriends sure. versus your mother-in-law versus your child and that's okay. Different doesn't mean bad. Oh yeah, I
0: love that. I love looking at that perspective and I'm sure we could probably talk a whole hour yeah, on like relationship because that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Um but it was just interesting that that j- just came up within the hour. Okay, let's jump into it. So yeah. Working mothers, you're a working mother and I'm a working mother, I always like to say I feel like I was pushed out of corporate just because I just wasn't finding the employer support that a lot of these companies, quote unquote, say that they have. I didn't want to become a business owner. I kind of had no choice to do it because I didn't have the support. So what are the implications? I want to start with the first question. What are the implications for working mothers since the rise of remote work? And twofold or two part to that is, what has changed and what do you think continues need to that continues to change as we continue to go on and see that more flexibility is is needed and even with some of this younger generation mm-hmm. that i feel like isn't going to adhere to some of maybe the old standards of how work was done so talk to me about that
1: absolutely and in my book it's it's funny you bring this up because i actually wrote employed motherhood pre-pandemic. Okay. And then I said, you know what, something is better than nothing. So I published it, actually, a book written pre-pandemic, but then the world evolved, Mm. right? The working landscape for moms transformed tremendously. So just a few months ago, I put out a new edition to really honor this transformation that happened. Mm -hmm. And I think we could look at both sides of the coin, right? Is that perhaps we are now not having to commute an hour in and an hour out of, you know, the workplace. Perhaps we have more flexibility around how we spend our lunch hour, or we can, you know, squeeze in that load of laundry, you know, in a 15 minute break, as opposed to Saturday night when we're exhausted. Alternatively, what I'm hearing is an amplification of the invisible load, which can be really hard when we're actually doing more because we're in a remote environment and that can breed resentment. And then two, navigating if we're partnered, how do you negotiate if there's one home office and both people work from home, or maybe you're having to, you know, compromise or perhaps you're the one at the office, and you're really expecting your partner to, hey, I've been doing this invisible sure. load for years on end. How do we how do we work together and collaborate? And when you only have 15 minutes of face to face with yeah. your partner or a grandparent or whoever is you know in your home, those are tough conversations. And so that's kind of the the two sides of the coin that I'm at least seeing anecdotally. But it's it's amazing to watch people and use their creative solutioning to say, hey, this is how we did it. This is how we're thriving or here. Here are some topics that we really need your help with. Mm-hmm. It's not a one size fits all. That's for sure.
0: And I was going to say, I would imagine you, you're probably hear more of just people trying to figure it out, as you said, and maybe just the most important mm-hmm. key just being the open communication where to not deliver. The resentment build on both sides, whether it's with your employer, and hopefully you have the relationship to where you can say, Hey, I need maybe a little support here or there. It's so, it's so fascinating how it's like we're like, oh, we're spending too much time away from work now we're at remote work. And then to your point, it's like, but there that arises its own challenges, even though someone could be like, What do you mean you're working yes. from home? But to your point, but then it's almost like, Yeah, but I'm home all the time and the invisible load is now larger and I'm not out of the house and it's 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 just yeah, it's it's interesting it's to his say that least. Too. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And making sure that you have, yeah, boundaries are key. My husband, unfortunately, had to go back into the office a couple of days during the week, which we didn't Uh. understand why after like three years, because he's got like three computer screens. Like he loves it. I'm not a a remote work. I like to have the flexibility of both. My husband loves working from home. Mm -hmm. But anyway, of setting up the boundaries of saying like he walks every day and he makes sure that he kind of gets his time in. But I think the resentment Mm -hmm. a lot of times come from the moms of saying, well, I can't necessarily get my steps in because I have to do the laundry. You do yep. this. I have the call. So therein lies then the communication saying, hey, I'd love to go on a walk too. Can you help me here? And not letting it yeah. fester. Yes.
1: I think too, and more of a workplace perspective of the pump, like something mm-hmm. as simple as where do you squeeze in that pumping session or how do you meet the expectations that your, your camera is on, you know, your audio is on, but you've got this pump going in the background that you're tethered to.
0: Sure. Now, I was going to ask this later, but I think it does tie now that we're talking your book because you mentioned it. Maybe let's let's go and start from there. I I had I had thought that maybe like I'd get your perspective on certain things, Mm -hmm. but you did mention your book. So let's let's talk about that. What was the inspiration and the journey to writing it that kind of prompted you to say, okay, I need to write this book pre-pandemic, what made it beforehand? And then of course, now you've changed some things because we're it's now post-pandemic, but where did that inspiration first come from? What was kind of like your mission behind sure. this book and who do you hope to help with it?
1: Absolutely. I mean, at, at the bottom of the barrel, it's to serve moms. That's really what drives me day sure. in and day out and to do second editions. if. You know, if I pause and think back on really underestimating the difficulty and the challenge with back-to-back transitions, first the conception journey, and then (laughs) the pregnancy journey, and then labor and delivery, and then postpartum, and then you tack on another major life transition, which is return to work. Yeah, And my personal experience and just kind of getting to know my friends' experiences too is this is tough and nobody's talking about it. And so, you know, I really sought to build resources, tried to find a perinatal therapist who specialized sure. in working motherhood, reproductive psychiatry, books. I tell you, I searched high and low and it, it didn't exist or it was, you know, undersaturated with resources or just didn't resonate. And so it, in a way, it was a gift to myself as well as the working mom community. And what I didn't want to do was to add one more resource that was pushing this hustle and grind mentality. I wanted something twofold, something gentle but also multidimensional because you know as moms we are multidimensional, multifaceted, we are nuanced, we are dynamic, and I wanted something to capture that. So the book comes from a framework of a multidimensional approach. Sure. And also I try to use, especially in the second edition, language that captures a a gentleness instead of multitasking. For example, I try Mm. to stick with mindful pairing. Okay. Oh, I like that. I just don't want to send the message (laughs) that we need one more thing on our plate. No, we don't. We we need support and resources and gentleness.
0: So, and the bio I read that it's a holistic, it's a holistically and healthily approach. Mm-hmm. So, can you talk to me about mm-hmm. how it is and what does you know? If I, what are the three takeaways? I I read your book, which now in my mind I'm like, how did I not read the book before us talking? Right? It's like always one of those things in hindsight, yeah. but what are the three takeaways someone would have from reading your book? And what is yeah. the holistic, holistic and healthy approach that you're seeing? I, I understand like the gentleness and of course. not adding that one more thing that a mom feels like, oh my God, I have to do this. And the pressure and overwhelm that comes with kind of mm-hmm. adding more, basically more to the motherhood load. So speak on that.
1: Of course. So in my clinical practice, I really try to defer to evidence-based, science-backed approaches. And and two of those are cognitive behavioral therapy, especially for perinatal mood and anxiety disorder, and mindfulness. And so that's integrated, peppered into the book just from the clinical perspective. And the holistic, gentle nature of that, an example is, let's say you have a negative thought Mm -hmm. of, I can't figure this out. I'm not meant for motherhood or working motherhood with what the gentle transformational might be. How do we use more affirming self-compassionate thinking of I'm a mom doing my best, trying to provide financial opportunity and modeling that I can continue to passionately pursue my goals and dreams in tandem with parenting. That's Mm -hmm. some of the work that we would do. And then the multidimensional. Is I go through the book in each chapter and focus on not just emotional, but relational, financial, environmental, social, occupational. And so I tend to the different dimensions. We are not flat. We are so dynamic as moms. So... Well, That's yeah. And I would imagine,
0: seasons. but there's also different seasons. Like I was completely different, different when I was a new, oh my gosh, breastfeeding, trying to keep my baby alive. Mm-hmm. And that initial shock yeah. factor to now, yeah. okay, I think I got a handle. But then to my point, now he starts preschool. And it's so funny. Maybe you could write, write something about this, or mm-hmm. maybe you've even talked about yeah. it in your in your thing. I feel like there's so much We don't even talk about the grieving aspect, not only of and and I've heard like the grieving aspect of like the identity, the work aspect and all of that. But I didn't realize how it was going to affect me of my son leaving preschool because he was there for about four years to now kindergarten and not even in the sense of, Oh, he's going to kindergarten. He's growing. No, it was like, Oh wait, this is hard. Now it's, he has to go to school. Now the pressure is on me to make sure he's at school. There's no tardiness. Like there's a whole nother level there and there's sight words and this. And I'm like, Whoa, like I, I wasn't ready for this. I'm like, where's the, where's the support for this now? You know? So to your point, we are multidimensional because Motherhood is ever changing, and we thought we had one season filled. I was like, oh <laughs> the past four years we've had this preschool thing down packed and now oh, I have to volunteer, I have to do things and it's a whole nother level that you're unprepared for
1: yes, transformational beginning to end for sure so I've heard yeah. of something
0: called like the microtrans microtransactions why don't mm-hmm. you talk to me a little bit about, about when you hear that what that means to you and sure how it would affect a mother in her, in her, trans, in, you know, in her daily life as in motherhood and all, in all the things.
1: Of course, I think we can all relate as moms, working moms that we swim through microtransactions, whether it's at the office mm-hmm. or a pediatrician appointment or on a play date, or as your child begins kindergarten and you're you know, first day of school, that first you know, experience on the airplane as you take your first trip with your child. Yes. I will use two two frameworks, if that's okay. The first is a neuroscience one, and I'll use two different pillars. So the first pillar is, you know, happy hormones, the dopamine, the endorphins, the oxytocin. And then the second pillar represents alternative hormones such as cortisol and adrenaline. And then the second framework is that cognitive behavioral approach that I use in my clinical practice. And the best way to boil CBT is what we call it down is through a triangle. The first point of the triangle are those automatic thoughts. The second are automatic feelings. And then the third are those automatic actions or behaviors. And the situation is in the middle, right? And Cbt some of the basics is there's a bi-directional relationship between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors mm-hmm. so for example, we feel the way we think, and coming back to those two two neuroscience pillars, we want to right thrive and have as many endorphins and oxytocin as we can because we know that helps with functioning sure and if we if we use that airplane example you know of let's say baby starts crying and we've all been there, can't figure out what's going on. Maybe it's the ears, maybe it's a feeding, who knows? But someone looks at us and then those automatic thoughts start to take over. Mm-hmm. That, that microtransaction, it can be as simple as a look or a statement. Sure. And if we can restructure, reframe our thinking away from Again, oh my gosh, I'm ruining the flight for all the passengers. I am that mom. Yeah. To something different. Like perhaps some of these passengers are parents and have been there too. And they're going to be understanding, and I'm doing the best I can. My best is enough. That might move the feeling away from anxiety and worry and panic to a little bit more calm, which then moves it the behavior into hey i'm going to sit here for a minute and you know try to do some heart to heart with my baby sure and you know, here we go and you can use that that model that cbt model at the grocery store at the pediatrician's office with your partner it's transferable
0: I love that. Thank you for sharing. What are some strategies to manage? We mentioned the separation anxiety, and that's something I did not sure. think I was going to deal with, but it hit me like a truck when my You're son was both. born. It oh, was yeah. bad. And somehow, mm. I don't know how after three months, I'd to go back to work, probably because the, the person we had caring for my son, like my son gravitated to her, towards her and he didn't gravitate to anyone, so I felt comfortable. And there were some other aspects, but either way, the separation anxiety was real. Now it's interesting because my son suffers from it more, and sometimes I get guilty. Like, I wonder if somehow I put some stuff over on him, which can be probably a whole nother conversation. But what are some strategies? There are some moms that their little ones are now starting school, first time being separated to manage and cope with transactions like separation anxiety and the trust building aspect with care caregivers. Mine was literally, my son went like this to her and I was like, oh, I took that as a sign because he didn't do that with anyone. He didn't do that with the other people that we interviewed. They just had this bond. And I was very, very thankful that it worked out. But talk to me about what are some strategies and tips for moms who could be in that season right now.
1: Of course. So I'll start with a trust building component with the caregiver, and then I'll offer three different perspectives for the separation anxiety. I want to start with moms because, you know, it's so important to tend to yourself. And then I'll offer the perspective of babies and then preschoolers. So pointing back to the Gottmans and their research on, you know, healthy communication, which is trust building, there's three pieces. And this is what I would say for moms to build trust with the caregiver is there's a gentle startup, <laughs> there's the I feel statements, and then the I need statements. Mm. And so let's say that you are, I'm thinking of the three month mark where you're maybe transitioning from four naps to three naps. And you know, you're know you having some feelings around that. You want to use a gentle startup. We know that how a conversation starts predicts the rest of the conversation. So with your caregiver, it might sound something like, I see all of the work that you're putting in and I'm so grateful that you and you know, my son have this special connection. I'm feeling really worried and concerned. There's that I feel statement about the upcoming transition from four to three naps. I'd really like us. I really need to have a a few conversations in the next week or so around how we can be successful and collaborate together to support his transition in naps. And so it. that's really the, those trust and they're ongoing, right? This is not just a singular conversation, but these can be ongoing and they can be with the kindergarten teacher a few years down the road, right? And then the other piece is separation anxiety. The first piece is mindfully pay attention to what are those automatic thoughts you're having? What are those automatic feelings? And oftentimes as we start naming them, In sessions with clients, it's, it may not be the most rational. For example, I hear a lot of my son's going to forget that I'm his mom. Yes. Or, and when we really dissect that, nine out of 10 times, no, that's just not the case. You can combat and challenge that type of thinking. But for, if you're, you know, going into the office, some strategies that are concrete and tangible might be, creating a playlist when you're pumping. So you've Mm -hmm. got that kind of connection there, a picture of you and your child to sit on your desk, maybe a photo album that you can sift through, you know, a conversation with your nanny or your childcare provider of, hey, can we FaceTime at lunch? Can we create some type of connection? And then something kind of outside of the box that I really like, and I did with my daughter's is I would sleep with their blanket that uh-huh. would go to the nanny or to the daycare and they would literally have my scent. Yes, And so it was something, I don't know how much that did for them, but for me, just knowing I was giving them a transitional object was really powerful. And yeah. then for preschool, just a few other yes. uh, concrete, tangible tips. The two bibliotherapy ideas that I talked about in the beginning of our recording was The Kissing Hand, which is a really sweet book that includes a song about a mom and a baby raccoon. And then the second one is this invisible string. And the idea is that there's this invisible string that always connects us. My five-year-old still, you know, it says, mom, when you were at work, did you feel your heart tug? Cause I was thinking about you. I was like, the invisible string worked. And then just those transitional objects, like, you know, I use hair ties or bracelets and I'll keep two. And then one goes with my daughter. And then at the end of the day, I get it back or even rituals for connection of, do you have that reunion song or, you know, a special handshake or the, I love you's that are just consistent and ritualistic that are predictable. And the child can really count on Of Okay. I'm separated, but mom always comes back and here's what happens.
0: I love that. The two things that come to mind that I did for kindergarten, I wrote notes in his lunch packs so yes. that he expected uh, a new night, even though his reading is yes. just now with his sight words, but just the fact that he had. And I asked yeah. him, I was like, did you know what this first note said? He's like, no, but it was from you. So I was okay. I said, okay. I said, it said I love you. But just for him to see when he first opened, like, oh, mommy thought of me. And then yeah. in preschool, we had some Like if if we went away on a vacation, then he had to start school, and it was that kind of like getting back into the swing of things. I would draw a heart on his hand and say every time, kind of like a little heart, like right here, and say, you know, just think of me. But I love, I think, and it's so funny because I think sometimes we think it's a grand gesture and this grand thing that has to be done. But to your point, Mm -hmm. just make it work for you, consistent, make it a routine that they know that they can expect it on both hands, right? For the mom, and for if the child. And speaking of anxiety. When does it become too much, though? And what is that difference between something that, or maybe even the difference of like something that's high-functioning anxiety? I think, I think anxiety has gotten a, a really—it's—it's it's talked about loosely, right? It, it, now everything's like anxious, anxious. Yeah. Um, and I had spoken with someone, and someone was like, you know, anxiousness is not a bad thing. Anxiousness actually can help us and you know to be it's it's when it gets to something to where we can't control it that it can become a problem. But anxiousness can actually help us to, you know, make us feel if if we're safe, if we're not safe, it's it's a very good, you know, like all of like fear and anger and sadness, it's just an emotion, whether good or not good or bad. But where is that fine line between something that is high functioning anxiety and productivity that it hinders you? And how do you really identify that true anxiety And what are some signs to look for if a mom's listening that might be struggling or thinking, do I have anxiety?
1: That's such a great question. You know, I'm going to back up just a little bit because I always tell moms, don't wait until you feel horrible before you pick up the phone and call. Mm. It's okay to say, Hey, I'm not, I'm not feeling myself or perhaps a loved one is pointed out of are you feeling okay? Yes. You know, don't let it get to the point where there is a tipping point in functioning or basic, you know, ability to tend to your own needs before you pick up the phone and call. Mm -hmm. And that can be, you know, your OB, it can be your primary care physician, it can be what we call a PMHC, a perinatal mental health professional before picking up the phone and calling. We know that 10% about, and it was higher during the (laughs) pandemic, 10% of moms experience anxiety postpartum. So I just threw out that statistic because it's higher than a lot of people really really realize and it's okay to get help early on. But to speak to like diagnostics, this is, we use, and that's one of the helpful pieces of a PMHC is we're trained in evidence-based assessments. So we would give you something like the PHQ-9 or the GAD to really assess, do you meet diagnostic criteria for anxiety? And that can include anything from, you know, excessive worry, mm-hmm. kind of waiting for that next shoe to drop, like waiting for something bad to happen. Often physical symptoms can be anything from nausea to heart racing, um, a sleep disruption, either not able to fall asleep or stay asleep, you know, appetite, fluctuation, either excessively hungry or no appetite at all. So those are some like hallmark signs. And then to speak to the the interplay between productivity and anxiety, you, know, you can have the same amount of productivity without anxious thoughts. I, I know that can sound like, wait, what? For example, let's, let's say, let's say you're talking about your car and, your kindergartner teacher you know, is coming to your car to drop off your son, and you're like, "Oh no, my car is filthy. you know I'm anticipating this teacher seeing it oh, what is she going to think of me? I better go clean my car now. That's the anxious negative thought as opposed to you know, I actually feel really good when I have a clean environment, and sure there's some dirt on the floor. perhaps I'll go." get the car washed during my lunch hour, you can see the same outcome as a clean car. But the difference is what's driving the productivity. It's not an anxious thought. It's actually a positive thought.
0: Ah, so basically, if someone's listening to this, if they're finding that they're doing things based on the anxious thoughts and not looking at it from like, oh, because I just want a clean car, but they're doing it because of X, Y, Z, then the anxiousness, then that could be what it possibly is what recommendation and i'm i'm thinking of this now of i guess i know we talked a little bit like with the school age children of, of like live, like for the separation anxiety but what about if a if a small child has and i and i know it's normal a lot of kids are like scared of the dark and that mm-hmm. little anxiousness but what if my son is a Big what if, what sure. if, what if? Yeah. What if the alarm doesn't work? Like specific questions. What tips can you give to those moms that have some of those kids that are like, Yeah, well, what if this happens? What are some recommendations of how to kind of talk through that?
1: Sure. There's there's a, again, we could have a whole episode yeah. on this one. <laughs> a, a great question. And just being attuned to your child, like are they having stuck anxious thoughts and yeah. how do you best support them? You can always combat that. What if thought with what if something else happens? What if there's a positive outcome without getting into toxic positivity? Because we don't want to go into always, you know, using positivity as a way to talk us out of our lives. Can
0: you talk about that for a mom to recognize what that is? Because I think that is popular that a lot of us do because we want to get away from the negative thought and think, well, if we talk further about it, it'll amplify it. But to your point, if everything is met with positivity, because truthfully, that isn't life. That isn't life.
1: Absolutely. A big step is just reflection. Mm. So I'm hearing you say this, and sometimes that's enough of an intervention for the child to say, "Sure, oh, that sounds kind of silly, or I don't think that's really going to happen. And that's enough intervention. But you first want to validate and reflect back what the child is saying of, I hear you saying this, and I can see how you would feel that way. A little bit of empathy and validation before you p- pivot into positive solutioning. That can create a nice space for the child to feel heard, validated, empathized with Mm -hmm. before you want to challenge the thought or the thinking or offer some different solutions to how you can then combat some of that. And sometimes it's just co-regulation of, you know, let's breathe together. Let's, you know, what could you tell your teddy bear or how can we take, you know, 30 seconds to breathe and, you know four seconds in hold for four seconds let's or you know something that we can kind of touch that's sensory oriented it depends on the child too you know your child best
0: for sure do you believe in having in in being completely I guess I don't want to say completely honest my husband's always had this thing like let's be as honest as we can be if he's asking the Mm -hmm. question and of course it's all age-related it's all age-appropriate but again Mm -hmm. my son has been talking since he's like I don't even know. Like two and a half of making of of and making sense and this and that and going deep with it. What are your thoughts on that? On having honest conversations with little ones? And where is kind of that mm-hmm. point where you say, How far do I go? Like with the my son, a media thing that comes to mind is with the bad guys in the house. And he's like, Well, I don't want to be alone in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Chase, it's me and Daddy here. And he's like, But well, what if a bad guy came in? I'm like, Well, we would hear the alarm. But what if the alarm's not working? Like, I mean, he gets through step by step. And I'm like, Well, then we'd call nine one one and I try and kind of follow the steps of like well you know and then at some point I'm like buddy like we would figure it out so where do we draw the line and do you think it's possible or to Mm -hmm. sometimes to just say and to your point with the toxic positivity where we do have to just kind of be truthful like we that comes up a lot in my mom groups of like how much do we say to our kids that is age appropriate without adding fear to them more if that makes sense
1: it makes so much sense, and I think we often underestimate the power of our own children yeah. of just an open ended question and allowing the child to empower it themselves. Mm. Of in this moment, I hear that here's right the reflection piece, yep. the validation piece. That you're in the bathroom and you're scared of a bad guy. I hear you. I I recognize that that's a real feeling for you, what would help you feel safe? And what can I do to provide some of those, you know, strategies and implement that for you? And and again, nine times out of 10, these children just blow me away because they, they know what they need oftentimes. But if they don't, they might be able to offer something that then you can say, ah, there's a nugget. What can I add to that?
0: Love it. And I'll give this as an example for anyone listening. So he's getting older. So some of his questions are sophisticated, but to your point, the problem solving with it. So he had asked me and he's like, well, mommy, how do you, how can I talk to myself if I'm scared? Because he hears oh. me say that a lot. And I said, well, you say in your mind. And I, he said, well, do you get scared? And I said, yes, baby, I told you. I said, mommy does. I said, I don't like the dark. He's like, well, daddy's not scared. I'm like, no, daddy's not. I said, but I do sometimes get, I said, and what I have to do is pause and say, okay. Let's reassess. I'm in a safe space. Like I, I told him, I said, that's how I talk. And he goes, well, do I have to say it out loud for everyone to hear? And I said, absolutely not. I said, you can talk to your brain. And then we got into a whole conversation of like, well, do I just say it in my I like mind? That. I said, yes. Mm-hmm. But to your point, I think they are kids are we have to give them more credit because mm-hmm. they'll come up with and maybe sometimes it's also just sitting back and listening and kind of instead of trying to guide the conversation.
1: Yes. It's so easy and it's against oftentimes well-intended, but we do have to kind of check ourselves. Are we projecting what, what we think we would want versus the, these little people are separate individuals and right. And we can grow and learn from each other, but they really are, they blow me away. They are so resourceful and, you know,
0: Yes. Before we part ways here, and of course, I'll ask how people can follow you. How old are your little ones? I didn't ask.
1: Of course. So I had my five-year-old, it's actually my 10-year-old's birthday today. So I'm actually having all sorts of feelings about double digits. I'm like, my kids will never be beyond three, but I'm like, oh my gosh, they actually do grow up. Yeah. But I'm, I mean, I'm ready to give back to I'm in a better space. I'm sleeping through the night, so oh. I've never been in a better place to show up for the postpartum community. So you have
0: 10-year-old and you said five?
1: 10 and five, yeah. Ooh, so you're in
0: it. So two grade school kids. Oh, I bow down to you. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, one one at a time, right? Yes. But no, that's awesome. Happy birthday to your little one and a big hug to you because it is. I I can imagine having all the feels with the double digits. And that goes back to our initial Mm -hmm. initial part of the conversation of like, people don't prepare you for that next kind of, what is that next step? You got it. The past five, maybe from even them starting elementary school to now like, wait a minute, double digits, what? Like that's so give yourself grace. And big hug to you. I will. (laughs) Yes. Okay, Becky. So how can people connect with you, purchase the book, where to follow you, all the goodness there.
1: Yes, thank you. So I can be found on Instagram at Employed Motherhood. My book is widely available. It's available for example at Barnes and Noble and Amazon. Uh, I am launching next month, a workbook specifically for working moms. So keep an eye out for that. Yes. My website is perinatal reproductive com, And then a new service that I'm offering is yoga for the perinatal community, which includes trauma informed yoga, pelvic floor yoga, mobility, just to really show up in mommy and me, and they're going to be virtual. So anyone oh, can wow. access them. And that's launching in the next couple of weeks. So please, any, anyone who could benefit from you know, yoga, soft, gentle, trauma-informed, check out my website in a few weeks.
0: Awesome. And this will all be in the show notes. I always ask my guests to have final thoughts. So if someone had to listen to this conversation
1: mm-hmm. and say,
0: okay, what, what would you really want them to take from it? Now's your chance to, to say what
1: that is. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, to point back to the good work that you're doing, Nicole, is we are in this together. Don't, don't forget that if you feel alone, we are in this together. There are people and resources and supports and you do not have to suffer alone. There's a tribe out there waiting to just welcome you in and support you and to lift you up. I would say that's the final thought that I have of we're, we're in this together. We really need each other.
0: Yeah, we do. I think community is one of the most important things for mental health. Mm -hmm. I mean, shoot, when you see even people that have lived longest in life, if we can take from them, a lot of it is community support. They have that tribe, that village, whatever that is, hold them accountable to push to them to be uh, an ear. So that's awesome to end on that note. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much, Becky, for coming on, for sharing such great tips and strategies. I will definitely be checking out your book and happy birthday to your little Mm -hmm. one and continued blessings to you for love and light. Thank you. Same. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this impactful episode of the Motherhood Village podcast. Subscribe to my show so you'll never miss a future episode. You may also rate and review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with someone that can use it as part of their Motherhood Village. Remember, your village can take up many forms and you do not have to do it alone. Connect with me at themotherhoodvillage.com. Blessings to you for love and light.